Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. And welcome back in a historic week in America, it is not a good week. It is historic in a bad way. We are, of course, releasing this podcast on the day of the first formal arraignment and indictment of a United States president. It is a crossing of the Rubicon from which we will never return as a society. We're going to have a lot to say on that. The way I want to structure this particular episode, I want to break down at first what we expect to be in the formal arraignment that we will hear later today. Of course, it's currently all speculation, although we think we have a pretty good idea of it. Then I want to talk about just a broader kind of higher altitude view, what this means, this crossing of the Rubicon that I have referred to. What does this mean for the Republic going forward? The too long didn't read there would be nothing good, that's for sure. Then want to talk a little bit about what this means, politically speaking, the ramifications of it for the 2024 Republican presidential primary, of which Donald Trump is one of only a handful of formally declared members. And then at the very end, I want to come back to a previous topic of conversation just real briefly pertaining to what happened recently at Stanford Law School and Judge Kyle Duncan getting shouted down. We have some updates on that. I think those updates are very important to share with you, the loyal listener. But let's get us started here. So this is a tremendously historic day. The word historic here is not necessarily used in a good way. It is used in a bad way. So yesterday we saw these images of the motorcade leaving from Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach to Palm Beach International Airport in West Palm Beach, this presidential motorcade, Secret Service, and then Trump Force One, the president's jet that he has had for many years, lift off from the sunny, free state of Florida to fly up to New York, where President Donald Trump is today formally surrendering himself to an arraignment for New York County District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg, of course, is a Soros-funded prosecutor. Anyone who says that he is not Soros-funded would be lying to you. He received at least a million dollars in donation from directly George Soros' tied efforts in his uh, in his recent election. He has explicitly identified on various occasions with kind of the, the Soros movement. And it, it's important to note right out of the gate, you know, Alvin Bragg, when he was running for district attorney in New York County, New York, he quite literally ran on a get Trump platform. He said time and time again that he was going to get Trump and they've done it. And, and they have astoundingly done it in a way that would make Joseph Stalin proud. There's just there's just no other way to say that. I mean, if you think back to the infamous Stalin-esque, really just a direct quote, I think, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, from the great murderer and tyrant Joseph Stalin himself. He infamously said, show me the man and I will show you the crime. That is basically what Alvin Bragg did here. He ran on a Get Trump platform. And the underlying incident for those of you who have been paying less attention than you probably should be to this most sordid affair in the political history of the United States, the underlying issue here is the so-called hush money payment that Donald Trump had his former lawyer since convict, Michael Cohen, provide to porn star Stormy Daniels to the tune of $130,000 prior to the 2016 presidential election. This pertains to an affair that Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump allegedly had many years ago, well prior to the 2016 presidential election. It is important to note that Donald Trump actually 
denies that he had any wrongdoings with Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels herself, for what it's worth, was formerly affiliated with the utterly disgraced and subsequently convicted lawyer Michael Avenatti. That would be Michael Avenatti, that who was blaring all over CNN with uh, Christine Blasey Ford during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings back in 2018. So, so many sordid actors involved here. And of course, Alvin Bragg's two quote-unquote star witnesses in this dystopian prosecution are Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen himself. I mean, my God. You know, if you were writing this script in Hollywood, some producers would probably look at you if you were the screenwriter and say, like, what the hell are you doing here, dude? I mean, like, you you, you jumped the shark like, like five moves ago. So, Anyway, that is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an alleged, quote unquote, hush money payment made to Stormy Daniels prior to the 2016 presidential election. It is important to note that paying someone off to prevent him or her from speaking out in a way that you do not like is not illegal. There is nothing illegal about that activity. You might morally judge it however you would like to morally judge it, but there is absolutely nothing inherently illegal about paying someone to keep their mouth shut. Uh, It's very important, I think, to note that right out of the gate. The alleged impropriety here is that where Alvin Bragg, again, the Soros-funded prosecutor in New York, one of the iconic Soros-funded prosecutors, along with Kim Fox in Cook County, Illinois, that would be Chicago, Uh, George Gascon out in Los Angeles County. We saw the recall last year of another one in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin. So Alvin Bragg fits comfortably into that tier. And the alleged impropriety is that Trump improperly processed this $130,000 payment through Michael Cohen and then improperly recorded the transaction as a payment of legal fees. So the alleged, the alleged misdemeanor under New York state law, if the charge is accurate, is that it is a misdemeanor falsification of business records. Now, under New York state law, this falsification of business records can become not just a misdemeanor, but a felony if the falsification of business records is done in furtherance of another crime. That's kind of just how it works in criminal law. Something can get, you know, a a longer sentence or a shorter sentence, whether it's a mitigating factor, an aggravating factor. That's kind of just how it works as the law students learn in their criminal law 101 classes there. Where to begin on the list of issues here? There are so many to count that it's sometimes difficult to know where where to begin. First of all, The misdemeanor falsification of business records, New York state crime, has a two-year statute of limitations. So to break down the legalese here, crimes typically, almost exclusively, have a statute of limitations, which defines the maximum time period, maximum time period after which the underlying conduct of a crime can be prosecuted. After that, you basically have forfeited by prosecutorial inaction, so to speak. And the basic rationale here for statute of limitations in general, to kind of think back just to kind of legal theory, the basic ramifications is that, you know, it is simply unfair as a matter of kind of basic fairness, equity, you know, like actual equity, not kind of the modern left's bastardized dystopian version of equity, it is fundamentally just unfair to leave someone potentially on the hook for conduct that may or may not have been illegal in perpetuity for the rest of their lives. So so laws have statute of limitations. The statute of limitations, again, for the New York State misdemeanor falsification of business records is two years. So if this so-called hush money payment took place in the year 2016, uh, according to basic arithmetic, the uh, as far as I'm aware, the, the statute of limitations would have expired in 2018, so roughly five years ago. So that is one problem right out of the gate. Other problems abound here. So the what Alvin Bragg and his honchos there in the Manhattan DA's office are effectively arguing is that the in furtherance of the crime part where they are trying to get this from a misdemeanor up to a felony 
is a violation of federal campaign finance law, not New York state campaign finance law, but United States campaign finance law, which is which has been regulated at the federal level for a very long time. There was the McCain-Feingold law, of course, from the early 2000s. There was the Citizens United case. The Supreme Court famously decided in the year 2010, campaign finance is a is a big issue, big issue at the federal level. And the theory that Alvin Bragg has put forward is that the payment from Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels was intended to benefit Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. And the basic argument here is that it was intended to benefit his 2016 presidential campaign because the motive was to politically benefit him from keeping this information from going out. So there are numerous other problems here. One is that pesky little statute of limitations thing comes up again. So campaign finance laws in this nature, the underlying operative law, the federal law and the United States Code has itself a five year statute of limitations. So once again, basic arithmetic of this thing was done in 2016. It would have expired two years ago in 2021. So much like the underlying misdemeanor falsification of business records charge, this charge is also time barred. And apparently that did not stop Alvin Bragg. Two other glaring issues come to mind. One issue is that in order for Alvin Bragg to potentially prove this theory, uh, both to a grand jury, which apparently he has already succeeded in, that's why there's an indictment, and ultimately to a criminal jury itself, in order for him to prove this, he would have to affirmatively disprove that Trump, via Michael Cohen, acted from any other motive. Basically, he would have to show that Trump acted exclusively to politically benefit his 2016 campaign and not for any other reason. The glaring problem here is that Michael Cohen, who again is one of Alvin Bragg's two star witnesses here, along with Stormy Daniels, former porn star herself, Michael Cohen himself has testified under oath that Donald Trump did make or did ask him to make this payment story daniels for a different reason that different reason was to protect his family from embarrassment michael cohen has literally testified that under oath in fact he has said that that is why trump asked him to make the payment in such an opaque manner so the theory collapses there it collapses for the statute of limitations reason as well and one other major major problem that comes to mind here alvin bragg is a county district attorney He has no jurisdiction whatsoever to be going on a fishing expedition when it comes to purported violations of federal statutory law. That is beyond his jurisdiction, way beyond his jurisdiction. Now, if a U.S. attorney, if a federal prosecutor wants to potentially prosecute violations of federal campaign finance law, whether it's in this case or somewhere else, that would be legitimate, at least as a jurisdictional matter. I didn't say it would be prudent. It depends on the circumstance, of course, but it would at least be legitimate. But it is illegitimate here as a basic matter of jurisdiction. So there are so many freaking problems there right out of the gate as a bare bones, black letter legal manner. You've got the porn actress with the convicted lawyer, Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen. You've got the state crime barred by a statute of limitations. You've got the federal crime barred by a statute of limitations. You've got a county DA trying to prosecute an, an in furtherance of elevation of a misdemeanor to a felony by invoking federal law beyond his jurisdiction. You've got the fact that Alvin Bragg explicitly ran on a get Trump platform in the most Stalinist tactics imaginable here. One final thing to know before we kind of move on to the second part of our program today, it is also worth noting that Alvin Bragg's direct predecessor in the New York County, New York DA's office, Cy Vance Jr., considered and then ultimately rejected bringing this exact case. And Cy Vance Jr. is a pretty partisan, hacky guy himself there. So unbelievable. I, I mean, Alvin Bragg's you know fellow Democrats in his very office have previously said that they are not going to do this, that they are not going to do this here. So that brings us to the question of why. The question of why would they do this? Why would they 
do such a ridiculous stretching of the law, such a blatant persecuting of political enemies. And there are at least three reasons that come immediately to mind. The first reason is that they truly don't give a you-know-what, is that they have been doing this fairly out in the open for a long time, and the modern left, which has so flagrantly and visibly shedded any semblances of its once liberal self has become this leftist, quasi-Marxist, totalitarian, illiberal, wokist monster. They are just increasingly doing out in the open what they have really been doing, at least somewhat clandestinely, for years now, which is the open, naked, and unabashed targeting of political enemies. They're just taking it one step further. The second reason is that this is really just a stunt of sorts by Alvin Bragg, is that Alvin Bragg himself, again, is kind of a Soros-funded prosecutor. He's looking potentially for a bigger platform. He knows that this will get him all over CNN, all over MSNBC, probably all over the Sunday shows, CBS, NBC, ABC, those sorts of networks. He will probably get some sort of shiny, fancy book deal out of this. He'll probably get asked to teach criminal law, for God's sake, at some godforsaken, you know, mid-tier, midwit law schools or something along those lines. So he probably thinks that this is a good move for Alvin Bragg himself. He's probably getting no shortage of political pressure, I would imagine, from various other folks at City Hall, probably both above and below him on the chain of commands, potentially going up all the way to the mayor, Eric Adams himself. You know, it is worth noting, it is worth noting that we were all told that Eric Adams would be more moderate, right? We were told that he would be more moderate than his absolutely woeful and god-awful predecessor, Bill de Blasio. And uh, I, you know, I, I query whether that is the case at this point. You know, uh, Mayor Adams, I, I, from my perspective, I don't live in New York City, but he has really been anything but moderate. I, I, you know, his response to escalating crime on the subways, escalating homicide rates, has been anything but law and order. He ran on a fairly pro-police law and order platform. He's been anything but that. You got to think that Eric Adams probably could have put the kibosh on this if he had wanted to. He probably could have put a stop to this ridiculous witch hunt from Alvin Bragg, and he deliberately chose not to. And again, just to emphasize what I kind of just said there in passing, what is going on in New York City and has been going on for years now is dramatically escalating crime. So New York City's crime rate last year shot up by 22%. Homicides, gun trafficking, gun crimes are all way up. Just this week, just yesterday, the New York Post actually ran an op-ed from one of their op-ed contributors basically pointing out the lamentable, lamentable reality that uh, deaths on subway train tracks in New York City soared to 88. So there's an increasing, there's a a genuine pandemic, you might even say, of these lethal incidents on the subways, people pushing each other. It's god-awful stuff. I mean, New York is really a hellhole right now. New York is a genuine hellhole. I mean, speaking of the New York Post, the New York Post just broke this story over the weekend that there was a parking garage in Manhattan And there was a thief who came to steal a vehicle, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was trying to steal a vehicle from the parking garage. And the thief had a a firearm, and he shot the parking attendant. And if I have the facts straight, I think the parking attendant managed to acquire the firearm in the case of the altercation, shot back at the thief. And the parking attendant is now being charged with attempted homicide or something like that. I, I mean, like, what the actual hell? What the actual hell? And again, Alvin Bragg is one of these Soros-funded, quote-unquote, reform prosecutors, has deliberately, time and time again, tried to have a prosecutorial agenda where he does not prosecute, where he does not prosecute. I mean, it's literally like running for a judgeship on the premise that you will not judge. It's like running for a for sheriff on the premise that you will not police. This man is there as a prosecutor under the, quote-unquote, reform prosecutor presumption that he will not prosecute crimes. Just absolutely unbelievable. So at the same time that he is not prosecuting any of these other crimes, he is choosing to play out this cosplaying vendetta in real time 
against former President Trump. The whole thing, I mean, to call this Orwellian, I, to an extent, I really think does not actually do it justice. It is pretty dystopian stuff there. To make it even worse, to make it even worse for Alvin Bragg, as, as Alan Dershowitz wrote in this past Friday's New York Sun, it is likely that that there was a felony it is almost almost certain i would say that a that a felony was committed this past thursday with the leaking of the news of the indictment of course to immediately to cnn and other outlets like that go figure and who was leaking that obviously well it probably wasn't someone from trump's team by all accounts maggie haberman and all the other kind of journalists who are on top of what trump world and mar-a-lago are thinking by all accounts trump world was actually pretty taken aback by the news of the indictment so you have to think that the indictment, which was very quickly, perhaps immediately leaked, well, I mean, you have to assume that this is coming from someone on Alvin Bragg's team or a grand juror, him or herself. And it's worth noting, as Dershowitz reminded us in that op-ed, that under New York law, it is a felony, it is a felony to leak confidential grand jury information. So, you know, I guess we'll see if he decides to prosecute that one. I would think probably not. So to get back then to our final possible reasons as to why Alvin Bragg would do this, we've now gone through the first two reasons. The first one was that the Democrats at this point just don't care. They're effectively in YOLO mode. They're really just doing on the open what they have been doing behind closed doors to a slight extent for years. The second reason is that this is good for Alvin Bragg and political pressure, and it's just the whole kind of Soros-funded quote-unquote reform prosecutor nonsense and just absolute uh, inhumane garbage. The third possible reason, which is also what I said after the raid at Mar-a-Lago last August, the third possible reason is that this has a very natural rally around the flag effect. And what I mean by that is that it is very easily foreseeable that something like this, something like the Mar-a-Lago raid, those galling images of the police sirens outside the home of a former president, and I'm talking about Mar-a-Lago, of course, last August, it is very easily foreseeable that events like this have the consequence, and what I would argue is the intended consequence, of making Republican voters rally around President Trump as a hero, as a tribune of the people, as a martyr, all, all of that. And, you know, sure enough, President Trump has politically capitalized on this. He raised $4 million very quickly over like a 48-hour period. At some point this past week, after the news of the indictment broke, things like that. His team has been sending out fundraising emails kind of um, along the lines of what I just described, that, you know, that you have to contribute because this is kind of um, the great victim. And, and if they can come for Trump, they can come for all of you. That's the basic line. And the polls do show the the way the still way too early 2024 polls definitely do show that Donald Trump's lead has been increasing in recent weeks over the, really over the past month or so in general, as the news of this indictment has really kind of reached a fever pitch. So the third possible reason, at least, as to why do this is because the Democratic prosecutorial apparatuses from Attorney General Merrick Garland and the FBI last August in Mar-a-Lago, all the way down to Alvin Bragg and the Manhattan DA's office over these past few weeks, possibly want Donald Trump to be the 2024 Republican nominee. I do not think that is too conspiratorial. I do not think that that is overly out there. I think it is actually eminently plausible. And the basic argument here is they defeated Donald Trump in 2020, no matter what you may think of all of the fraud and irregularities and all of that that occurred, the mail-in balloting, all this garbage that happened during the 2020 presidential election, the overwhelming majority of which I have been vehemently critical of myself. The reality is that Joe Biden is president today and Donald Trump is not. That is just simply the inescapable reality of the world in which we live in the year 2023. And the basic argument or the implicit argument, I should say, the premise is that if the Democrats defeated him in 2020, then they can do so again in 2024. So that is one other possible reason as to why they are doing this. Now, as we let's turn here a little bit and just kind of talk about this from a slightly broader perspective. So the first thing to note right out of the gate here, as we turn tables a little bit, is that Alvin Bragg's indictment of Donald Trump may not be the last indictment that Donald Trump faces before the Iowa caucuses 
next early February, about 10 months from now. Donald Trump is currently facing investigations in Georgia pertaining to his somewhat infamous phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election and his attempts to try to get an additional uh, roughly 11,000 votes or so, if I, if I remember the, the tally correctly. So he, there was an investigation there that's been ongoing for a while now. There is the kangaroo court that was the January 6th committee this past year with the ABC News flashy producer and loopy Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and the whole clown brigade. They have since turned over their recommendations to Merrick Garland that XYZ charges ultimately be brought Hard for me to believe at this point, after the Mar-a-Lago raid and after this sordid affair with Alvin Bragg in New York City, that Merrick Garland, who has already shown himself to be a partisan hack of the highest caliber, really just throwing away any semblance of the fairly moderate reputation that he had steadily built up as a fairly centrist-minded D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge. He's just totally thrown it out to the wind at this point. So I find it hard to believe that Merrick Garland will not choose to indict something. I don't even know what that would be at this point, but something pertaining to January 6th. I mean, whatever it would be would be legally dubious. Uh, incitement to violence, incitement to interaction would be the best guesses there. We could break that down on a future show if necessary, but suffice to say, current Supreme Court precedent and the First Amendment's text itself would easily, easily protect all of what Donald Trump said in his speech on, on that fateful day, January 6th. And then in addition to January 6th, of course, as I mentioned, there was the Mar-a-Lago raid and there was this ongoing investigation pertaining to retention of classified documents. Now, this lattermost investigation, which is also legally dubious for reasons that we have previously discussed on this show, is perhaps the least likely to ultimately be brought for the very simple reason that Joe Biden, among other people, now has his own classified document retention scandal. But the point is, by next year, by December, January, by the lead up to the, to the Iowa caucuses, you could easily have Trump facing multiple indictments. And again, Alvin Bragg has breached the Rubicon. Alvin Bragg has stepped right across the Rubicon here. We are at the point of no return when it comes to American democracy when it comes to the quote-unquote R, capital O-R, capital D democracy, trademark symbol that that the libs love to shriek about and hem and haw about on CNN, the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. Well, you know what? How does your democracy die in darkness? How does that possibly mesh? How does that comport with trotting out putting in handcuffs in a mugshot and trying to ultimately lock up is obviously what their fetish is. Not going to happen, but trying to ultimately lock up a former president of the United States. I mean, you hypocrites can take your democracy crap and shove it. You can shove it all around the world, by the way, if I might say. We are seeing this ridiculous internal hypocrisy between the side of various domestic political debates that screams democracy at the top of their lungs and then acts in the most undemocratic manner imaginable. As one current example, of course, I'm thinking about the debate in Israel pertaining to their judicial reform proposal. Netanyahu, who has paused the judicial reform proposals over there, but only did so after the most mobocratic, mobocracy-run appalling street thug tactics that the leftist opposition there has done from stopping traffic to hunting down and trying to make hell upon legislators. I mean, just awful, awful stuff. Nothing particularly democratic about that. So there was just a tremendous irony here. And what does it say? I, I, I mean, how does America come back from this? I don't have a great answer to that question. I really, really don't. You know, and it's not like Previous presidents have had nothing to potentially indict. I mean, think about Bill Clinton, for God's sake. You, you don't think Bill Clinton did anything indictable? Are you kidding me? I mean, like, have you read up on all the various things that happened? Have you read up on 
Whitewater? Have you read up on Vince Foster? Have you read up on all of the other stuff? Paula Jones? Jeez. I mean, who the hell knows what some of these presidents in the, in the 19th century, for, you know, for God's sake, were, were doing. Uh, JFK, you're going to tell me that John Kennedy, you know, he whose father was the, the great mafioso-connected bootlegger from the Prohibition era, you're going to tell me that John Kennedy, JFK, never did something indictable? I mean, give me a break here. But one of the things, historically, one of the things historically that separated America from other kind of Western-style republics was the idea that we did not prosecute or trot before tribunals in kind of a handcuffed kind of public display of shame fashion our political enemies. I say historically because in recent years it has become quite obvious that the Democratic Party has forsaken this playbook. Like for many others, the aforementioned affair with Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford was a real, real wake-up call and red-pilling moment for me as it was for so many others. That was but one example of the modern Democratic Party and the modern left absolutely choosing to prosecute here in the court of public opinion, I guess you could say, an enemy of theirs. And that would be Brett Kavanaugh with all with the most ludicrous, obviously the most ludicrous allegations of all time. Christine Blasey Ford's story obviously did not hold up. I mean, do you remember when they tried to accuse Brett Kavanaugh of being a serial gang rapist? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So the Democrats increasingly are just out in the open about this stuff. They are really making no bones about this. And as I have argued repeatedly here in various other media and my columns, written audio commentary, the only way out is through. Where the pendulum in society from a legal, judicial perspective, political perspective, cultural perspective, whatever, where the pendulum is so off bounce where it is so askew the only way to fight back if you are on the right is to fight fire with fire within the confines of prudence and reason you have to do so you have to reward friends and punish enemies within the confines of the rule of law you know the democrats really as far back as a decade ago or so when, when we had the obama administration and the immigration debates pertain to the daca and dapa executive amnesties The Democrats were already legally taking the doctrine of prosecutorial discretion to hitherto unforeseen heights or depths, depending on your perspective. So why wouldn't Republican prosecutors, conservative prosecutors in very red areas and very red districts, Oklahoma, West Texas, places like that, why the hell would they not reciprocate in in kind? I mean, why not trot someone like a Hunter Biden or an Anthony Fauci out before some grand jury in the Oklahoma panhandle. I'm serious. I I mean, people might think that I'm being flippant or frivolous here. I am absolutely not. I am 100% dead-ass serious about this. The only way out is through. Until these scoundrels and miscreants learn to feel a scintilla of the crass partisan pain that they are inflicting on their political foes, Unless and until that happens, this isn't going to end. Really. I mean, neutral respect for the rule of law used to be a much ballyhooed concept and used to be a linchpin of the very democracy that the Washington Post hypocrites put right there in their tagline that democracy dies in darkness crap. But not anymore. Not anymore. Is America really that different at this point than all the other countries around the world that publicly prosecute the defeated candidate where the ruling party prosecutes the defeated party's candidate criminally speaking criminally speaking let alone doing so on the most dubious grounds imaginable as we spent the first 20 minutes or so of this episode explaining the statute of limitations the jurisdiction all of that and i submit to you the answer is no i do not think that at this point we can say with our red, white, and blue patriotic pride that America is that much above various other third world banana republics that openly and nakedly and unabashedly prosecute their defeated political enemies from the previous election. That is literally what is happening here. 
And man, um, it is just really, really, really galling stuff. But I, I just want to emphasize the only way out here, guys, is through. Whether it is local prosecutors, whether it is the next Republican held Department of Justice, the only way out is through. Period. Unbelievable. So let's turn to the final kind of subset here that I want to talk about when it comes to this historic and unprecedented indictment of former President Donald Trump on falsification of business record grounds. I mean, you know, even just saying that, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me was kind of like, uh, you know, the uh, how we how we all remember that, that the feds got Al Capone on tax evasion, right? <laughs> you know, the, the, the potential difference there is that Al Capone actually, uh, by all accounts, was guilty of tax evasion. And I think it is extremely dubious whether the president or foreign president Trump is actually guilty of the, of the crimes here. But that was my first thought was, you know, Al Capone, the, the great gangster, the racketeer, all that stuff. They finally got him on tax evasion charges. That was that actually was kind of my first analogy that I thought of here. So how does it shake out? How does it ultimately play out when it comes to 2024 Republican presidential primary? Well, we had another candidate jump into the fray on Sunday, Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas. He's got about as much of a chance of winning the Republican presidential nomination as I do. Asa Hutchinson, if you recall, was the Walmart-funded establishment hack who went on Tucker Carlson's show uh, maybe about a year, year and a half ago or so. Uh, And, I mean, he had... He had just vetoed the legislature's attempt to either heavily restrict or outright ban the use of hormonal drugs and puberty blockers, so-called gender-affirming care, to use the dystopian term for minors. And Asa, no doubt listening to those big bucks that he gets from Walmart, had decided to veto that legislation. And Tucker Carlson had him on his program that evening, if I recall. And he literally let out the, uh, like, he, he started like this 10 to 11 minute interview by saying, so, Governor, you've come out as pro-choice on the topic of chemically castrating children. <laughs> and Ace just responded with the most platitudinous garbage, the most platitudinous claptrap imaginable pertaining to Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley and limited government, blah, 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 blah. I mean, ugh. I mean, t- bastardization of Reagan and Buckley, to be clear. But no, Asa Hutchinson, I mean, my God, sir, what are you possibly doing? But the other candidates still in the field, you know, you've uh, right as of right now, formally declared, you've got Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, neither of whom I am a particularly big fan of. We can get to that more in depth in a future episode. And you're going to have a lot of other people jump in. I mean, it looks like Chris Christie's going to jump in. It looks like Mike Pence is going to jump in. It looks like Mike Pompeo was going to jump in. It looks like Tim Scott is going to jump in. I have no idea why he's doing so either, to be honest with you, really, that it applies to a lot of these people. We'll see if Glenn Youngkin of Virginia gets in. And then, of course, there's the big kahuna in the room as far as the undeclared candidates are concerned, which is Ron DeSantis, the uh, stalwart governor here in Sunshine State. So... From a short-term perspective, no doubt, the news in recent weeks of this indictment and all that it pertains to has had the rally around the flag effect that I mentioned earlier, and Trump has boosted in the polls. No doubt about that. He's been able to capitalize on it from a fundraising perspective. You know, query whether Trump himself actually deep down really wanted to get indicted. I mean, frankly, the way that a lot of his surrogates and social media we're discussing it. I think that's a not implausible theory. A lot of kind of his leading surrogates seemed almost excited, kind of reading between the thinly veiled lines about this indictment. Now, by all accounts, Trump himself was you know pretty dour um, uh, about it. I, I, you know, I, I hard to blame him. Uh, this is obviously a a terrible thing that any human being has to go through getting indicted. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible affair. Obviously, holding aside just the manifest BS of what happened here as well. But query again whether deep down he might have been happy about it to an extent here. It definitely allows Donald Trump to play the role that he is most passionate about playing, which is kind of that of victim, martyr, tribune of the people. You know, a literal criminal indictment allows him to play that role quite, quite easily. So the short-term effect has definitely been to increase the Republican grasp that he has right now. And if you look on, on predicted.org, which is a political betting website. So I actually had looked at this just a few weeks ago out of curiosity, and Trump and DeSantis were basically tied. As of right now, Trump has a slight lead. It's not a huge lead, to be honest with you. It's a slight lead. 
in the odds of the 2024 presidential nomination, definitely as far as the polling is concerned or the national polling, which is way too early at this point. The national polling does show that Trump has had an increasing lead over DeSantis, who again is still formally undeclared in the 2024 presidential polls. Worth noting that those polls are actually quite a bit closer when you look at Iowa and New Hampshire, which are the first two states to vote. So that's interesting in and of itself there. The real question is, what effect is this going to have, not here in the short term, but mid to long term? In both the primary and the general election. Well, I'll take the latter first because the latter is easy. I think in the general election, this unambiguously hurts Trump. Unambiguously so, which again lends credence to the idea that Democrats know what they're doing here. They think it'll help him win the primary and lose the general. And it undeniably hurts him in the general for the very for the very simple and straightforward reason that independents, people who are not formally affiliated with a party, moderates, this you know, those proverbial suburban mothers, people like that. They just want normalcy and sanity for the most part. And the Trump show, the Trump show with all that it, that it entails, the all caps late night tweeting or truthing on Truth Social, all of the drama from, from the rallies, all the drama from these criminal indictments, all of this turns those people off. It, it just does. There, there's, there's no other way to say it. Obviously, it will help him with it with his hardcore base, which is why it might help him in the short term and possibly into long term, but it definitely, definitely hurts him with those independent and moderate voters, which is why I think it would hurt him in a general election for very obvious reasons. Now, when it comes to the Republican presidential nomination, again, as we've said here, it definitely helps him in the short term. Does it help in the mid to long term? I don't know. It's not at all obvious to me, frankly, that it will. Again, Iowa at this point is 10 months from now. And by then, you could have different indictments, too. You could have an indictment in Georgia from, you know, a prosecutorially ambitious or politically ambitious prosecutor. We'll see what Merrick Garland comes up with when it comes to January 6th. I'm, I'm skeptical they'll do the classified document retention stuff, just given what Biden has been through at the Penn Center for Diplomacy or whatever we're calling that CCP-connected boondoggle of a quote-unquote think tank. But... Definitely, we definitely might get something, uh, you know, legally dubious, obviously, but something from Georgia or January 6th. And, you know, do you think like independent Republican voters, Republican voters who are not kind of firmly or unabashedly in the camp of any candidate? I mean, do you, is the argument really that they're going to just totally ignore or just be totally cool with? multiple possible indictments of one candidate when there are perfectly rational or sane alternatives, especially, obviously, in the case of, of Ron DeSantis, who offers a lot of the good that Donald Trump offers, but extremely little of the bad? Well, I don't know. I find it hard to believe, honestly. So I do think that this kind of short-term spike in Donald Trump's stature in the Republican presidential primary is more likely than not to be relatively short-lived. By the time the Iowa caucuses come around at the latest, and probably by the time the first debates, which I believe are going to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken, by the time the first debate comes around on that big debate stage, I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably the tide will have turned at that point. The tide probably will have turned. And at that point, I think Republican voters maybe already by then, again, by Iowa at the latest, I think probably would have had enough. That really is fundamentally the question, though, as we gear up ever closer to the earnest contestation of the 2024 Republican presidential primary. The million dollar question, and this is the question that every Republican voter has to ask him or herself, is have you had enough of the Trump show or do you want more Trump show? That really is the question. If you want more Trump show, Trump's your guy. If you think that this country is ever, ever closer, ever, ever closer to the abyss, the point of no return, and put me in that camp, <laughs> then maybe you want to look elsewhere. Maybe, maybe Ron DeSantis starts to look like a very, very appealing candidate because you just, you just want a ruthless executor minus the baggage, someone who can just get out there and go ham on day one someone who has the vision, who has the track record, someone who didn't sign the first step act, thanks to Kim Kardashian and all that garbage and all of that. So 
That is basically where it stands now. But today, just to underscore, today is a very, very sad day for the United States of America. It is a very sad day. It is a point of no return. And anyone who is not so utterly blinded by Democratic Party partisan hypocrisy should be able to recognize that this is a very, very sad day. Just, um, just awful stuff. And there is no chance whatsoever, obviously, there is zero chance that Donald Trump is going to end up behind bars here. So the only two possibilities are an outright not guilty verdict from the jury, which would be justice for sure and would certainly do damage to Alvin Bragg and the Democratic prosecutorial apparatus or potentially some sort of plea deal. Uh, knowing what I know about the facts of this case, I suspect Trump will probably see this thing through. I would, I would be skeptical that his lawyers would kind of go into this, at least at the beginning, kind of thinking that they might get a plea or negotiate a plea out of this. I could be wrong about that. I think the most likely scenario is that he ultimately is found not guilty. But what a sad, sad, sad day for these United States. Just awful, awful, awful stuff. As we kind of near the end of this particular show. I do want to very, very quickly kind of throw in one bit of, of fodder here at the end, which kind of directly relates to the theme of mobocracy and the hypocrisy of the quote unquote, our democracy crowd that dominates the left these days. And this past Saturday evening in Austin, Texas, at the annual banquet for TROLP, the Texas Review of Law and Politics. That is the conservative law journal for the University of Texas School of Law. I have attended their banquet at least once in the past. When he was giving his speech to receive their Jurist of the Year Award, Judge James C. Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, who, full disclosure, is my former boss. I was one of Judge Ho's very first four law clerks. Judge Ho announced that he and his 11th Circuit colleague, Judge Lisa Branch, would be extending their previously announced boycott of hiring law clerks from Yale Law School to Stanford Law School. And they are doing so as a direct response to the recent neo-Robespierre-like vile and juvenile and disgraceful shouting down the successful heckler's veto that was recently at Stanford around March 10th of Judge Kyle Duncan, Judge Ho's Fifth Circuit colleague, who was trying to give a speech to Stanford Federal Society and was literally shouted down, as we covered at great length on a recent episode of this particular show. It was a stunning, stunning, stunning display of the extents to which DEI and the woke ideology have metastasized inside one of the country's leading schools of Legal education, the DEI dean, who, thank God, has since been placed on administrative leave, Tyrion Steinbach, was deeply complicit in that. She sided it openly and explicitly with the protesters over Judge Duncan. But in her subsequent letter after the fact, the dean of the law school, Jenny Martinez, who did put Dean Steinbach on leave, good for her, did reaffirm basic free speech values, good for her. She failed to punish any of the students there. And what some of us, including Ilya Shapiro, who we published in an op-ed on this and Newsweek, have called for is, quote-unquote, exogenous shocks. And the basic argument here is that if Stanford is not going to fully deal with this problem internally, then something externally has to happen to force Stanford to kind of crack down even further and, and ideally, ideally punish this vile band of misfits, including this one horrific human being who calls him or herself a Stanford Law School student who shouted at Judge Duncan, quote, I hope your daughters get raped. And my God, what the hell is wrong with you people? So anyway, in his Trump speech, his acceptance speech for jurist of the year of this past Saturday evening in Austin, Judge Ho announced that he and, and Judge Branch would not merely refuse to hire for the foreseeable future law clerks from Yale Law School, which is its own form of punishment for Yale Law's own major, major issues on campus, but they would also be extending that boycott to Stanford Law School as well. Good for you, Judge Ho. Good for you, Judge Branch, for joining this as well. This is the only way that we can ever have any chance whatsoever of rectifying this problem is firm, firm punishment 
ideally not just from the federal bench, but also from employers, from law firms as well, from the entire panoply of the legal profession should be censoring and rebuking these sorts of actions, this sort of utterly juvenile conduct that is fundamentally unfit for service in the legal profession. So really good for you, Judge Ho. I hope that more judges join you this time. I note that after the Yale Law boycott, Judge Branch was the only judge to do so. It would be awfully nice if other judges besides Judge Branch actually formally joined this time. And personally, I think that Judge Duncan himself would be an awfully good place to start. But for now, major plaudits to Judge Ho and Judge Branch. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Again, a terrible, terrible day for the institutional and democratic health of these United States. But as with any other day, we trudge on. We will arise tomorrow. It is a brand new day tomorrow morning. We have crossed a Rubicon, but we still fight as best we can to preserve this wonderful experiment in in order to liberty that at least was and hopefully will be again the United States of America. So once again, I'm Josh Hammer. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.